Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're talking fitness industry, social media, and mindset with Andrew Coates. Andrew, welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. How are you doing? Hey, great. Um, thank you. Squeeze me in between uh, some client sessions today. So I appreciate <laughs> it. Having- yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been watching you on Instagram. Congratulations, by the way, on 100K followers. <laughs> and That's one of those things that, you know, it's like, is is congratulations really in order? And there are the, the people who will bemoan and complain about social media following and devalue it. And then they're there's people like me who look at it and go, well, if we're going to complain about the people sharing all the bad information, then we know that complaining doesn't actually do anything constructive. So why not actually get pretty good at sharing better messaging, information, media? So I said about doing that. It's grown. It's done well. And I try to set an example to other coaches and fitness professionals. And uh, my hope is that that's how we change the industry as opposed to spending our time in these little battles in little echo chambers that don't have any effect on the general population who just want to feel better. Yes. Could not agree more. Yeah. And you absolutely do. You do a good job. And I do think that congratulations in the way that you're building your audience and the way that in the message that you deliver, because it really is a positive message. Um, I do think that congratulations is in order for that. The other thing that I'll say is one thing that I noticed about you with your page is that you seem to be very involved with the community in terms of, Hey, you know what? These are pages that I think you guys should follow that are really good pages where you'll get some really good, valuable information. Yeah. That's, that's a mindset. I mean, we can cliche it down to abundance mindset, but it's really easy to tell from someone's media or just interacting with them, whether they're very transactional whether, you know, everything is about what do they get out of the whole experience. And the reality is, I mean, first of all, if you're smart enough to immerse yourself in the good that our fitness industry, our community actually has, well, A, you're going to learn more. B, I'm inspired by the example of successful friends of mine who've done really cool stuff that I'm like, wow, okay, I never even realized that that was possible. So it's enriched my career. I like spending time. It's one of the reasons why I travel to a lot of fitness events is I like Going into these environments, uh, yeah, meeting new people, connecting with people I know through social media. Uh, and again, it, it's lit a fire under me to lean into a lot of the cool things that I've gotten to do in my career. And then me sharing other people does not take food off my table. It doesn't, none of my clients aren't going to be like, oh, wow, thanks for all these better coaches. Uh, we're good now. We'll go train with them. It's not like that works that way at all, right? If anything, if you're doing a great job with your relationships you're building, People will appreciate you just that much more. It's like the person who's scared to refer out to a qualified physical therapist. I referred one of my closest friends to, I've got a handful of great physical therapists here in town. And so she was telling me some stuff that she was dealing with, and she's got a physio who's discouraging her from lifting heavy weight. So I'm like, "Mm, okay, that's a little bit suspect. I'd rather you have a second opinion here, go and, you know, talk to one of these two people. And I send a lot of my clients to those physical therapists because it's not like I'm worried that all of a sudden they're going to go, okay, well, I'm not going to train with you anymore. I'm just going to work with this physical therapist or, you know, I now only have money for physical therapy. It's more like I have resources. So the experience of working with me, because I have all of these skilled, qualified professionals, and in the case of the industry, great people who have way more knowledge in certain areas that I just don't have the time to produce all the resources or learn about all this stuff. Like if someone really wants to get into athletic uh, conditioning programs, Joel Jameson is the man. He's like the person for this stuff. I'm going to direct people to go do his work. Or if someone really wants to dive into a lot of the the perinatal postpartum type training, Brianna Battles is incredible. And I can go on all day with this sort of list. And the reality is, is I'll never be able to direct enough time to approach even a semblance of the mastery they have in these areas. So it's just easier to send people, hey, these are great resources. And invariably though the universe gives back tenfold because then all this cool stuff starts to happen people want to interact with you they want to 
have relationships with you. They want you to come on their podcasts. They want you to come right for whatever they're doing. And you know, it just it it's crazy to me to think that people are are selfish about this sort of thing. Yeah, like they're holding back the secrets that no one wants anybody else to know about. I was listening. I've been really digging into Alex Hormozy stuff lately. I don't know. Yes, yes. His wife is one of my favorites. Layla's incredible. So they put out great, great content. And Alex said this recently, something to the effect that you give away everything for free. And what you do is, you know, people will pay you for the implementation. And good coaches in our industry are giving away tons of information for you. You can go into dig into all my training articles, the stuff I've written for T Nation or, or wherever else I'm writing for, or listen to my podcast or just chew up pieces that come on social media. And then people turn around and then they, that's not the stuff that they really need. The stuff that they really need from the coach is the accountability, the relationship, the, the implementation and execution and their guidance. So that way they're successful. And if you give away a lot of great free resources, well, one, it generally shows that you're more knowledgeable, more qualified anyway, which actually enhances the chances of someone wanting to reach out to you and work with you. So I understand the rationale for wanting to be paid for some of your content, but I think that it can be a mistake for most people in our space. I suppose here's a really good question. Is your audience mostly coaches, mostly enthusiasts, or a mix? You're talking about our, our uh, audience? audience yeah so um i think it's a mix it's definitely a mix it really depends on what type of content i post right like so sometimes we'll post things that are a little bit more scientific that may be a little bit over somebody's head uh or we'll post something that is just more practical right so we try to kind of fuse the two and through that i do find that we get a lot of coaches trainers dietitians and then we also get the clients who kind of come into your dms with questions about what they're going through and things of that sort. I just want to make sure that anything I I say is not directed to, to the wrong audience. <laughs> yeah, I think I I try to as much as I can. And it's interesting because Nicole and I had this conversation before we had you on. Do we want to talk to Andrew about the coaches side of things or do we want to talk about the client side of things? I think generally speaking, I like to speak to the client side of things because at the end of the day, I don't like we don't sell a product for coaches. We sell a service for clients. So I think that's where we try to gear the majority of our content towards. But in the mix of what we do, we end up getting some coaches who also want to learn more. And coaches will still pull a lot of valuable information away. Maybe it's just the way things are communicated. Whereas we get into the nitty gritty about coaching, you know, the coach stuff, then I know that the everyday people sometimes will... May, may not be interested in that. So I'm, I'm good for whatever. Well, I think uh, what I do want to get into is a little bit about you. So our audience knows about who you are and what your background is and how you got into fitness and what you're currently doing. Because it seems like you're doing a lot in the industry. You're doing a lot of writing, right? So how'd you get into fitness and how'd you get into what you're doing now? All right. I started as a personal trainer at 32 years of age. I fell into it because I wasn't enjoying what I had been doing. And the gym I was working out at a couple of the coaches there kept bugging me to come work there because they thought I'd make a good trainer. So that's actually how it all got started. You want to go back further. I've been working out in gyms for over 20 years. I grew up playing a lot of sports, you know, always generally athletic. Uh, got a degree, a Bachelor of Commerce degree from uh, Memorial University in Newfoundland, the east coast of Canada. And I live in Edmonton, which is sort of the northwest. But it wasn't like, hey, I'm some passionate kid coming out of university going, hey, I want to train people. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I couldn't imagine the course that it's taken. But I fell into it. I was able to get busy fairly quickly, uh, enjoyed it. It went really well to the point where I started diving into, you know, more of the educational resources. I started reading Teen Nation. I got into Lane Norton stuff early on, his, his YouTube. And then that spiraled into more and more deep dives, listening to a lot of industry podcasts, I worked for a commercial gym for six years, just punching hours and sessions, gaining a ton of experience that way, head down. I left that, started my own business contracting at a friend's gym. And then I met a good buddy of mine. It's funny, it's Facebook, six-year anniversary today. And then after a while, he asked me to start a podcast with him. So that was a great connectivity vehicle across the industry. I started traveling to fitness conferences in a lot of them in the U.S., where I met a lot of the industry and, you know, developed a lot of friendships that have continued on. Then along the way, 
I started writing for my own website. And then one of our podcast guests was Danny Sugar, one of the editors from T Nation. She turned around quickly and asked, hey, would you consider coming to write for T Nation, who I've been reading for forever? So dream come true. I've written for them for four years. And then that led to, you know, other entities to where, you know, eventually I'm being asked to write for Generation Iron and then Muscle Fitness Magazine, which I've been reading for 20 years, and then Men's Health most recently. And who knows where that'll take me. Now, it does seem like I write a lot of stuff, but I actually write a very small volume compared to a lot of professional fitness writers. What I've done is I've actually leveraged the amount and the publications I've written for into you know, hey, doing presentations on fitness writing because it's utilizing fitness writing to grow other aspects of your career. And then it turned into a lot of speaking engagements, which, you know, they compete for your time, especially when you are a full-time coach, you have an online business, an online coaching group, you know, two podcasts each week, try to manage, you know, a large social media, be efficient with that, have some semblance of a life and work out most days. So that doesn't necessarily leave a lot of time left. I think my buddy Roger Lockridge, who writes for Muscle Fitness, I swear, he wrote got hundreds of articles, massively hundreds of articles this year. And I'm I'm going, how the hell is that humanly possible? But he does it full time. Whereas, you know, my volume of articles is just a, a tiny shadow, a fraction of that. But I've just tried to make it really impactful. And would you say it's more exercise fitness related? Uh, the writing stuff, it, yeah. it varies. I mean, the media that I do, it, it kind of goes to the conversation about who are we serving, you know, the other coaches or the end client. I don't have a, a business offering for other coaches. I mentor a few, sure, but I don't even advertise that, nor am I seeking to grow it. Uh, I train everyday people in person. I don't have really overly specialized populations. My online coaching is very general population. But the speaking engagement stuff is generally geared towards career success development for coaches. The writing stuff can be a broad spectrum from strength training, you know, muscle building for teenage to, you know, I used to write for true coach and that stuff was very geared towards other fitness professionals, men's health and muscle fitness tends to be a bit more general population. So there actually can be incongruencies across the media, which is sort of funny because my podcast, one of the two is invariably geared towards conversations, to help coaches. So, you know, for, for other coaches, especially, it can be a little tricky to know. I, I think most people really do need to be more efficient with where they direct their message. So that way it's to the right audience. I'm sort of a happy accident of throwing a lot of stuff out there and it's it's worked out okay. But I do hope that the overall majority, including my social media, is very accessible to the general population. Uh, yeah, it definitely seems like it is geared towards mostly your everyday gym goer, which is great. It's definitely a relief to see. You post a lot of content. You know, I've seen a lot of your posts based on like new gym goers. Right. So I guess where the direction I want to go in now is what do you think holds back new gym goers? What do you think some areas of opportunity are? And what do you think some difficulties are that they face when they're just starting out on their fitness journey? I think people are scared of giving up all of the things they enjoy. They're scared that lifestyle change means sacrifice. It means, you know, I don't get to watch any of the, my favorite shows again. No, it probably just means you just aren't going to be current on 15 television shows or, you know, it, yeah, it's like we don't have all the time for all the things. And it is a little cliche, but I would rather take it as a metaphor than being literal. But how many people know a hell of a lot about a lot of damn TV shows and yet say, hey, I don't have time for the gym. And that's not my original thought. I've heard that before. I think people are intimidated by gym culture. I think that our industry or corners of our industry major forward-facing competitive fitness side of the industry is doing a massive disservice to the general population because they, you know, they, they, they perpetuate negative stereotypes. But I also think that our industry needs to stop grabbing onto those negative stereotypes and complaining about them. I think the answer actually is being better ambassadors to the gym. And that is people from all walks of fitness in, in our fitness careers. And then the end user it, it's tricky because people also want, they want something fast and our, our lifestyle is ever more geared towards fast and convenient. And there's, isn't really something like that. I mean, sure there's plastic surgery and there's, and I never remember what it's called, but this is, this is weight loss drug, this, you know, diabetic drug that of course the celebrities got onto that actually works and, you know, used appropriately. It's actually probably a great intervention, but it's the cliche to say that people, they want the magic pill and, 
we do have to start being honest with ourselves and moving away from this attitude of, well, I want all the results fast and I want to be able just to go back the way life was before. What I would try to show the picture of is, hey, you wouldn't want to go back to the way life was before. You wouldn't want to go back to the lack of energy. You wouldn't want to go back to the lifestyle and the way you felt. And if you give it a chance, a genuine chance, nothing extreme, but just something reasonable under the guidance of people who actually know what they're doing, you're going to feel better. You're going to like the experience. You find the right environment. You know, the gym, maybe it seems scary, but take a chance on it and realize that, well, not everybody's looking at you. In fact, everybody's really worried about themselves. Okay. And yeah, you get the, the gym fail videos of idiots, the rare examples that go on blast of someone who's filmed, you know, some dude who's being creepy on some girl or filming or whatever. That shit is super rare compared to most people's everyday experience in the gym. And that's not to devalue the people who've had negative experiences in those spaces. But if we perpetuate those examples, all we do is we discourage other people from doing one of the healthiest things possible. So with my media, I'm just trying to show people, listen, it feels great. It actually is an awesome experience. You would never want to return to the way that you felt before you started going to the gym or being active on a regular basis in whatever shape or form. And as far as nutrition goes, honestly, I would rather have, uh, you know, I just sat down and ate salmon, Brussels sprouts, uh, you know, baked in the oven and some rice. And I enjoy that. I like pasta, but I would rather cook most of my meals at home, which I actually really like, you know, good breakfast every morning. And then it creates room during the week to enjoy something, you know, if I want to have a meal out. But when I find that I'm stuck eating food on the run, it's not fulfilling. I regret having spent the money on it. It's never as good as you imagined it is. And sometimes it's just grabbing on and remembering these lessons. So that way we realize, wait a second, if we actually take a little bit of time to efficiently help. When I, again, this, this, this salmon Brussels sprouts rice thing. Cool. Slice up salmon. In the oven, slice the Brussels sprouts up, pour a little bit of olive oil on it in the oven, time it good. Rice on the stove, cool. I get to sit down and just chill out and do whatever I want, you know, roughly keep an eye on it. It's not like I'm slaving over this thing and there's like four hours. You see these people who have an entire counter covered in meal prep food and it looks like, and they're, they're talking about how they took four hours on a Sunday out of their Sunday. That's not actually what's happening. And those people are not representative of how it works. And that's not helping because it's making it seem very daunting to the person who's just really tired from the week and they just don't want to spend all of their, they want to spend their Sunday relaxing. You can relax on a Sunday, still cook healthy meals and not feel like you're slaving over the effort for two, three hours. I think oftentimes people think that they need to basically overhaul their entire lifestyle. And it's like this all or nothing mentality where they're like, I have to jump into this thing head first. And just like you're saying, I have to prep every single one of my meals. I have to do it ahead of time. I have to put it in a Tupperware. I have to go to the gym five, six days a week. I have to do cardio on top of that. And the reality is, is it it literally just starts with one change. And I think that often gets overlooked and it could be the smallest thing. It could be just go for a 10 minute walk, right? And then every day and every month and every year, you're getting better and better over a long period of time. 100%. And it takes experiencing it to know. And that's the leap of faith people have to take. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people have been, yeah, they get misled by marketing by companies that promise rapid weight loss or you know, the, the companies that, I mean, commercial gyms, I, I mean, I think are net positive, but I think they could do a little bit more to prepare your, your new people to know what they're doing. And that's not to give them a you know, a, a free session or two, which is really just a, you know, a disguise for a, a consultation to try to sell people on personal training. I have some mixed feelings about that because I've been in that environment, right? I don't like cold selling to people, but yeah, I, I honestly think that we as an industry, we can still do more to give the resources to people to help them just ease into this world. Um, but it gets, it gets overwhelming too, because like we said, people are, they love the allure of the promise of rapid fast results and without necessarily a lot of effort. Well, this is where something like semaglutide, the weight loss drug that you were talking about, that's where that comes in, right? Where they're just like, well, I can lose all this weight very rapidly. And from my understanding, from what I've seen and heard, uh, even from physicians, is that you'll gain the weight back very quickly if you stop taking it. And it needs to be kind of an ongoing treatment. And we recently did a an episode on this where we talked about 
I can see from a an obesity standpoint, like if you can get somebody's weight down very, very quickly, um, that is best case scenario from a health standpoint. However, I will say a lot of the people that are taking it aren't those people. And they're the people that kind of want the quick fix. And one of the issues that I have stated that I have with it is it's not really teaching you to deal with hunger and actually be in a calorie deficit and know what that feels like. And my fear is when people come off of that, they're just going to be ravenous and just eat again. Well, that's the problem with any intervention, though. If you stop working out, you gradually will lose the muscle mass. You'll gradually get a little bit weaker. If you come off of a balanced nutrition approach, to nutrition off a quote diet, then, you know, if you go back to eating the way you did before, you're going to gain the weight. So it's, I mean, if you stop drinking water or breathing oxygen, bad things start happening fairly. <laughs> I mean, that's the condition of life. You know, it, you're, you're in these things for life one way or the other. And yeah, I don't love the idea of using a drug as a quick fix, but at the same time, I think the message that some of the industry likes to preach that it's all about personal responsibility and, you know, it's underpinning it all. It is about personal responsibility. I want to be careful with this message, but it is complicated by a society and a modern world that we live in that makes it overwhelmingly challenging. The fact that a lot of people overcome that is proof that it works. Genetics, more and more, we are looking at, yes, genetics play a role, but the environment is far more important. Um, genetically speaking, a lot of people, you, you have an entire family that's obese, and you say, well, that's because of genetics. Mm, actually, it probably has more to do with the environment you were raised in. And so I'm actually very loath to wave around genetics in this context because it tends to disempower people and make them feel like, well, you know, it's pointless. I can't do it anyway. And then they default to the worst case scenario, which you know, in some cases, it's just an excuse not to put in the work. You know, we, we put in work as I'm, I'm, I'm not a parent, but, you know, people put in work as parents, they put in work in their careers, they put in work in various other aspects of their life in all sorts of relationships. And, you know, it's not a free ride to just be in optimal health without actually conscientiously putting a little bit of effort in there, too. So I think that's one of the, the flaws in the way that people think is they think, well, oh, it should be easy. That's bullshit right? Nothing about it is easy. I, I think it's really worthwhile once you get in the groove and develop the habits. But I think we have to discard this idea that, oh, it's going to be easy. As as far as the weight loss drug goes, I mean, I'm not even an expert on it. I default to Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. I think he's probably one of the experts in that space. He's great when it comes to obesity medicine. And I find he's got a really nuanced message that gets away from this, either this this really hardcore, you know, I would even go as far as to say almost like fat shaming sort of message that you get from some people. And then the other side of the coin is equally unhelpful. It's the ones that's like, oh, it's it's not your fault. Um, you know, it's all your genetics. It's all the environment. You know, there's nothing you can do about this stuff. Um, it's it's healthy to be. This is a complicated one that people tend to get twisted about. But telling people that it's healthy, long long term, there's no relationship between obesity and your your health outcomes. That's a that's a blatant lie and a very malicious malevolent sort of behavior that it seems like our industry is less tolerant of the people who get along with this ideological narrative that's you know completely junk it's there's no basis in science whatsoever and i don't, I, I know that they're preying upon vulnerable people but the answer is not to say listen you know there's something wrong with you you're weak if you can't do this stuff because you look around at the pressures and the stress and, and the life that people live and the environments they're in not everybody has the same advantages I think we have to take that stuff into consideration, but we also can't say, all right, well, these are valid reasons why, you know, it's not going to work for you. Therefore, there's no point. That's not the answer at all. The answer is, all right, let's let's take these things into account and now let's find solutions for you individually so that way you feel confident, you feel empowered, and you're successful. Just to kind of tie in everything that you're saying, I, I, I love some of your posts. I have four top posts that I refer back to with a lot of my general population clients. And one of them that I'm thinking of as you're talking is strength training should be part of your retirement plan. And I use that now when I talk to people about long-term lifestyle change, because that is something that I fully support and think if people think down the road what you want the end of life to look like, your commitment to what you're doing now is going to be more beneficial. And so that's just something I'm thinking about as you're talking. And the reason why I think that one's resonant is because it crystallizes the long 
term, right? It gets you to actually link the, the action of strength training today, tomorrow, the immediate behavior with it, it, it gets people to create this visceral idea in their mind of the retirement. I've got another post that does something similar. It's like, you know, picture yourself in five years and, you know, if you, where would you be in five years based on today's behavior? Are you going to improve? Are you going to decline? Are you going to maintain? Um, and I like this sort of sentiment too. It's like, you think about, you know, your future self, whatever time frame, not as this far off abstract thing, but as an actual person, if you picture where you're going to be, try to imagine yourself five to 10 years from now and realize that that's actually a real human being. That's a person. And they're completely at the mercy of everything you're doing right now, because where we all are right now in our life is because of decisions we made five, 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Oversimplification and a convergence of all sorts of other life factors. But the stuff we do now is going to affect how that person is five years from now. And if the nutrition is so abysmal that that person is significantly less healthy, well, we know that we can't reverse that in the space of a few weeks of dieting or even a few months, right? It takes time. So it's much easier to actually care about and take action for another person we care about. Imagine our mom or kids or, or someone in our life. Well, think about you as future you as also something, somebody that you care about. And it might be just enough to get someone to think, all right, there's, there, there's important aspects to the decision right in front of me. Uh, that's more than just, well, I just want to eat this, you know, delicious food. And I'm good with people enjoying the delicious food. That's really actually means something to them. I just like to get people to think about all the crap that they eat mindlessly that they don't even feel fulfilled by. They regret, they don't enjoy it. They feel kind of shitty about doing it. They've wasted money on it. I, I think, hey, let's actually identify what are the things we really treasure and we really love. Those are non-negotiable. Leave them in. It's cut the other garbage out. And yeah. like I said earlier, I would rather eat the healthy meals that I cook than almost any fast food or anything I could get more conveniently. And then when I think about it, if I really want to treat myself to something good, I'll go get a DQ blizzard, uh, Reese's, mm -hmm. Peak, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup DQ blizzard. That's a treat to me. Or maybe I'll, I'll have a, a good pizza. Yeah, I, for a while there, I was ordering pizza from this place and it just, it used to be good and, and it became mediocre. So I stopped ordering it because I'm like, I'm not actually enjoying this. There's a new pizza place now. I really like their pizza. I found something great. So once in a while, I enjoy that pizza. And because you're doing everything else, that's, you know, generally speaking, more quote healthy, then you don't feel guilty when you sit down and you actually enjoy the yes. things that you really care about, which is a really powerful factor from breaking away from some of the emotional relationship, negative emotional relationship we have with food, super complicated concept. And, uh, and then I think that's key to progress. Yeah. That brings me to my second favorite of yours, which is pause a minute before you make your next good choice or choice. And so that ties into the whole nutrition, which is what I used a lot in taking a moment to think about it. If you do want to order something, is it something you really enjoy? Are you ordering last minute because you didn't prepare, plan, think ahead, and really utilize that awareness as a tool to create an empowering relationship with food as opposed to a negative, shameful, guilt-ridden relationship with food? It's mindfulness. Just yeah. being a little more mindful of choices. And people throw that around. I think there's some really smart people. Jill Coleman does a wonderful yeah. job with, with uh, you know, Moderation 365. Dive into Jill stuff when it comes to that. She's, she, te she teaches it well. I think you can distill it down to this. And this cascades into a lot of different ways to approach it. You can approach, you know, even things as complicated as addiction in this way. And I'm not an addictions expert by any means, but you can give yourself permission to do it. But you have to wait five minutes. I think with food, I think the rule is, is better with five minutes or 15 minutes. It gives you a chance to decide, am I, do I really want this? And there are more complicated factors in this, but you can also, it'll help with your relationship to figure out, are you physiologically hungry or are you psychologically hungry? Are you bored? And mm -hmm. I, I actually, people freak out and they get really nasty about this rhetoric, but I think it holds true at its core. You know, if you're craving, let's say the cookies in the pantry, and you feel hungry. Well, if you're bypassing the apples on the counter for the cookies. Now, yes, we know biologically, psychologically, we're wired to seek the 
the um, the higher calorie food. We just are the tasty stuff, right? That's why it's tasty. Combinations of sugar and fat that never occurred in nature. It's super normal stimulus that people are just like conditioned now to want to seek out. But if you were actually physiologically hungry, really hungry, that apple would be pretty bloody appealing. So you'd eat the apple. Uh, I think as a general rule, at least that gets people thinking. If you want to go broader context, then you can say, you could say, all right, I give myself permission to do this, but I, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And the idea in that context is to keep making, you know, oh, it's now tomorrow. Well, tomorrow is now today. So I give myself permission, but I still, I have to do it tomorrow. And this can, this is a really extreme example, but I mean, I've heard this talked about in, in the context of suicide and it's not really about giving yourself permission. It's just about pushing the decision off, always feeling like the option is on the table and getting you through the roughest patches so that way you don't do something immediately on impulse. Now, again, definitely not an expert in that realm, but I hope people can at least see how that example works in if it can get you past a craving or a really bad spot emotionally, and it helps you with whatever nutrition or, you know, maybe it is a tool you can implement with addiction. I ultimately think if you're dealing with these things, you need to go to the appropriate medical professionals uh, to talk about these things. Do not listen to me or people on social media who have no credentials, who purport themselves to be mental health experts. I would discard those people outright, okay? But just as the example to illustrate what I'm talking about, it's 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 a way to think about it. Yeah, agreed. I would, I would say there's a ton of people that purport themselves to be experts in just about anything on social media. But um, what are your thoughts on, because one of the strategies that I use just, I guess, kind of to counter that approach is take the foods that you like and fit them in with the parameters that you set for yourself. So for example, if I were to say I have an allotment of 2000 calories in a day and within reason, obviously you're not just going to eat all hyper palatable foods, um, but allotting yourself, okay, you know what, at the end of the day, I want to be able to save room for a cookie for some of my carbs and fat or macros or, you know, so on and so forth. I love it because I mean, that's really what we're talking about. It's flexible dieting or if it fits your macros, whichever way you want to look at it. I, I know that people like Alan Aragon and Lane Norton and Sohi Lee all popularize these approaches. And we know from the research that, you know, there's nothing special about things like intermittent fasting or keto when calories and protein are equated in fiber. So from a psychological aspect, for some people, counting calories is going to work. For some people, it's not at all. For some people, they're going to be able to eat a little bit of something each day and feel very satisfied. For some people, psychologically, you know, it's going to trigger a binge because they're not there yet with their attitude or with their, with their relationship with it. I think fundamentally, it's still one of the best approaches possible. It's also why I'm good with the Weight Watchers point system. People like to freak out about all these sort of things, but at its core, Weight Watchers point system is really just a type of flexible dieting. And it's it's like anything. I, I One of my clients messaged me today. She's been using Weight Watchers and she wanted to ask, you know, if she should continue with it and wanted to have a chat about it. And I mean, I'm fine with Weight Watchers because... I think for the right person, it can work. I mean, any system can work within reason for the right person, but it goes back to what we talked about before. It only works as long as you're using it. So flexible dieting only works as long as you're using it. Keto only works as long as you're using it. Now, I think there are some actual problems with keto in the grand scheme of things long-term, but I've also seen people who've had some pretty good success with it. So if you self-select to it and you can sustain it, everything's fine. I don't really care. Um, with the exception of the really extreme stuff like, you know, carnivore dieting or veganism where, and I don't want to piss the vegans off, but if you're not addressing the nutritional deficiencies present in those more, and I will say it extreme nutritional ideologies, uh, because they can take on a very extreme form. I think that carnivore is really just a knee jerk counter reaction to veganism. And I think it's also, a, there's an interesting concept. Beware of people seeking out ever more extreme real estate. I like the analogy of, you know, you, you the, the downtown core of any city is usually where the most expensive real estate is, right? I mean, yeah, you get your rough neighbors, what have you, but there's no available land to set up shop and build something new. So of course, what happens, the boundaries, the edges of the city, the outlying communities, there's, there's available land, but at a certain point, it becomes time prohibitive to commute to the center of the city or otherwise just like exist in that city. 
But there are people in the industry who are always looking for that available real estate. Right? And it's not available downtown, the fundamentals, the basics. So this is where shit like carnivore came from. And then, of course, the liver king comes along. It's like, all right, now it's organ meat and bull testicles. And that's extreme. But yet it was extreme enough that people like extreme and different. So they, so that's an example of uh, there, Jason Fung. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a fan. You know, Lay Norton likes to rip them apart. This nephrologist, Canadian nephrologist who suddenly is a fasting expert in the obesity code, like most books in the nutrition section of a, of a bookstore. It's, they belong in the fiction section. They're not based on good science. But then there's this local coach with no credentials. So yeah, guys are different sort altogether. If everybody remembers a snake diet guy, you guys heard of that guy? He's been, I think, a little quieter the last couple of years, but he blew up for a while. And he just took fasting and made it more extreme to, you know, get, encouraging people to do like four or five day fasts, doing extreme long dry fasting. And then he's starting to drink his own urine. And there's all sorts of other really crazy crap. And it's just the this land grab for the only thing that's available, which is this really extreme unattractive real estate. So I, I just think people be really aware of that trend in Tennessee because it's a way for these type of people to stand out. And invariably they're usually charlatans. They're usually so, that this this is the way to do it. And this is the only way. We saw that with to some degree with paleo too. When paleo came out, it's you know, you you can't eat lectins and you can't eat this and that. And you know, the research on lectins at the time and even now is kind of sparse in terms of who it actually affects from a gastrointestinal standpoint and uh, uh, intestinal uh, hyperpermeability and uh, so on and so forth. So yeah, it's definitely a good message to say we need to watch out for the charlatans. I think, you know, one of the issues that we find in this industry is that people still seem to gravitate towards that stuff. And it's the people who are like, the conventional wisdom is wrong. And what they're telling you is wrong. And it's like, almost as if it's kind of like this conspiracy. Well, it is It is analogous to conspiracy theory thinking. I mean, and again, I'm not an expert in this realm, but you know, this has been done before where researchers have basically made up just totally crazy shit and present it to people who have conspiracy theory theorist leanings and told them, told it to them. And they just, bought it right straight away without evidence at all but yet you present those people with you know peer-reviewed research on a topic to debunk whatever they believe and they're going to say oh it's it's biased or it's paid for by big pharma or big fucking food or whatever the hell that they just think is behind it all but then they'll turn around and like some obscure youtube video is all the evidence they need to prove their point and at that point it's less about the specific issue and it's more about the psychology behind conspiracy theorist thinking which i think is a well understood psychological phenomenon our population, people are just drawn to extreme crap. They're they're drawn to promises of a uh, fast and easy. They like to see that there are narratives or reasons behind just random events, right? Like crazy shits going on politically in the world or whatever. There's a, a secret society of snake people or the Illuminati or the Rothschilds or whatever people believe it. Someone listening is going to be like, oh, it's all true. Okay, cool. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm not fighting with you about it. That's just the psychology. And we can't save everybody. This is the other problem, too, is we can't save them all. And there's really probably not worth our time and energy arguing in pitch battles with these people, because these people will draw a lot of our emotional resources, a lot of our time, especially if you want to get in, in the weeds and fight with them. It can be a performative way to do it. I mean, Wayne Norton has certainly done well with it, but people, if people equate Lane's rise to popularity with his, you know, fighting, and usually Lane by his own admission, I was with him at an event we were both speaking at in Scottsdale, and he's learned to punch up, not, you know, punch down on, on like little people, coaches who are newer, just trying to do their best, right? He's He's been there before. Lane also has built a massive library of free information resources. He has done a lot of, things in his industry he's a ton of credibility in a lot of different dimensions he's a you know record holding power lifter on top of it all and an indomitable spirit so if someone thinks that he's where he is because he just likes to fight on the internet they completely miss it and i see a lot of coaches and this is for the enthusiasts listening to beware of this stuff if you see people who really are just trying to build themselves up by ripping other people down even if it's evidence-based you got to be careful with this one but sometimes even the evidence-based people like to use shame tactics on people who they just think are wrong. And again, I'm okay with calling out verifiable charlatans. I still think we're better off going at the message 
you know, I've mentioned a few charlatans like Jason Fong or Lever King or whatever, but okay, fine. Like again, that's punching up, not ripping on some, you know, young coach who just hasn't figured it all out yet. Right. And shaming them into the point where they don't listen to us and therefore they double down on their bad belief system. That's not helping anybody. I, I don't think, yeah, like I said, I don't think we can save everybody. So I still think that if we have a compelling message and it's packaged in a, in a way that it's got plenty of empathy and it tries to understand the circumstance from where most people are coming from, you can't you can't have messages that are going to are going to be empathetic to every single person's complex individual circumstance. The people who fight about that, I don't think, are helping either. It, yeah, it, <laughs> I know I'm dancing around a little bit, but that's I okay. Hope. I you know I think to your point about that's not how Lane got his kind of claim to fame by punching. I honestly think it's the opposite. I honestly think that Lane would likely have a and this is just my opinion a much larger following if he wasn't punching and he was just de de delivering you know just scientifically backed evidence-based information I, i'm not suggesting he wouldn't so on that part i think you also have to look at someone like lane and it's inherent to his personality right it's just authentically yeah. who he is so there is no scenario in which lane is doing all these sort of things uh, that all the all the, the constructive evidence based informational sharing stuff, where he's probably not also sparring with, you know, the the more notable charlatans in the industry, but I still do think Lane's credibility comes from just all of the hard work he's doing, and it's why he's getting on podcasts like Huberman, and he's been on Rogan before, and he just did Peter Atia and Ed Milet. Lane is very much breaking into the mainstream, and I still think that's based on the credibility of the work that he's done and the legacies he's built. I think there will always be people who will be turned off by someone's messaging, but there are an equal number of people who are drawn to him because of that nature versus people who like someone looks at my social media and they're not going to find a lot of confrontational stuff that's meant to wind people up. I, I don't have the time for that. I don't have the energy to deal with that crap. I would rather have people self-select to what I'm doing because they think it's generally positive and helpful and I know people who are deliberately confrontational. They're deliberately polarizing. And I'm not interested in playing those games. And I could attract more people, but I think it's really exhausting. Like, I, I wouldn't go near this stuff, but there are people that post a lot of like socio-political ideological stuff. And you end up attracting the tribes that are really plugged into that. And those are like really wound up angry people in, in large numbers. I don't want to deal with that stuff. I do not want to have content that even goes near that crap because I don't want to have my own brain fixated on all that shit I can't control and be angry all the time. So I would rather just focus on the stuff that I'm interested in and the, the way that I can actually help people. So your media is going to be about who you want to self-select to you, but anybody listening also give some thought to what you self-select to and in the past, when I followed people, I found more polarizing. I've learned to probably tune that out and in a lot of cases unfollow it just because it doesn't work for me. I don't think of Lane in that light. I think Lane is actually one of the best people in the industry. Um, you know, and I know he's got a heart of gold and he really cares. He's just not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. Well, that brings me to one of my other favorites on your Instagram. I'm just going to come back to you, which is uh, going to the gym is much more than building your health. What do you, what are some of the life lessons or other reasons why people can show up to the gym to help build a healthy life, mind, body, spirit, soul, et cetera? Well, mind's a big thing. And this do not conflate me saying, hey, it's one of the most evidence-based and proven ways to improve your mental health and emotional well-being. That is not me pretending to be a mental health professional. That's a verifiable fact when it comes to research on exercise science. And a lot of people, they they know that, okay, this is really important to their well-being every week to be able to go to the gym to have that. Maybe it's the, the parent who's getting a little bit of time away from parenting or <laughs> the person who the workout, I mean, I've had, you know, careers in the past where, you know, my workout at the end of the day was what I looked forward to that actually helped me get through the day at a job that I didn't feel fulfilled by. And I think a lot of people are there. Um, I think the gym is a powerful outlet for people to develop confidence. And it's an environment that teaches you that you can control your own outcomes. I think the gym breeds mm -hmm. more of an internal locus of control because you get out what you put in. And I think a lot of people get very trapped in the idea that they have no ability to affect what happens to them in life. And I think they're also the same people who gravitate towards ideological extremists, believing that 
you know, whatever's going on politically is going to somehow, you know, affect your life. It's either going to fix all your problems or it's going to ruin your life. And those things are not true. And again, I just don't want to be around that kind of mindset. So instead, I think it teaches people, I'm actually more in control of my own outcome. If I put in this effort and I eat this way, I can build muscle. I can actually get leaner. I can get stronger. I feel better. And once you figure that out, you don't want to let go of that. And that's what we started with is this whole thing that once you get immersed in this world and you see what life is like, I don't think you'd want to trade that in for the way that you used to be. And there's still room to be able to watch your favorite shows and eat your favorite. Mm -hmm. It's just cutting out the volume of junk that we just occupy ourselves with because we don't have, we're not fulfilled by other things. And I think that the gym can be a really fulfilling part or, and I, when I, whenever I say the gym, I, it's really a proxy for any physical activity you enjoy with you, like hiking or, or running yeah. or, or cycling or jujitsu. They're just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a metaphor for anything that fits. Yeah. I have, um, I always tell clients when they come in the first workout that they do with me or something that they find challenging, I'm like, this is the last time you're ever going to feel this challenged doing this deadlift or doing this push-up or whatever this sprint. You'll never feel this way again. If you keep coming back, you will always get to the next level and feel better. So you never have to feel this way again. So this is the last time we're ever going to experience this. So just get that out of your mind. You're never going to feel this again. You can keep moving forward. So I feel like that's empowering for people to understand that you don't have to be in that moment ever again if you keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing to add to it. Well said. Yeah. I have one more for you, which is um, this one really, really, really struck me because I very rarely see people just in general, not just social media, but trainers in general talking about children and their viewpoint on growing up, um, viewing strength training or the parents going to the gym in a positive way. And I think I'm not saying this exactly how you put it, but something about children growing up viewing strength training as normal and it not being an intimidating thing or something that they should be afraid of, that if you're a role model as a parent in any capacity for activity, then you're doing more for your kids than the latter. And I find that to be really interesting because a lot of, I have a lot of female clients who feel very guilty about leaving their children or going out to get their workout in or leaving home to get in a class or leaving work during lunch to get a walk. So what do you think or how do you think we can, uh, you know, make that a more positive, you know, connection or atmosphere for both the, ch- the parent and the child just in general as maybe family wellness, fitness so mindset? I'll, I'll, I'll try to address this as best I can. So you actually tied in two things. So the one, the main post you're talking about, it, it's really about just exposing kids to that environment. It's it's actually less about having them strength training at a young age, mm-hmm. about just letting them be in and see that environment. You know, if you're a parent and you work out, you know, the gym that I contract out of allows kids to be present, right? They don't have the kids care that's off to the side. And yeah. the idea there is how many adults and maybe people listening were scared of the idea of gyms. It was totally foreign and alien. And we have adults who are overweight or feeling very unhealthy or both, you know, 25, 30, 35, 40 years of age and stepping into a gym, absolutely fucking mortified of the idea, believing all these stereotypes. Mm. If you get kids who grow up in and around these gym environments, and it's not about forcing them to do anything. It's about letting them see that this is what this environment is like. This is a positive place parents become role models for this sort of behavior kids like to model what their parents are doing and this is normal this that's it it's it's normal for those kids and so whether they embrace it at a younger age and becomes part of who they are or they rediscover it later on it is something that's more normal less intimidating more accessible to them that is the the bottom line with that and you also said something that i believe in we have a societal gender role where caregivers especially moms put themselves last. Now, I'm a single guy, no kids. It's easy for me to say that, right? But at the same time, it starts with actually recognizing, okay, this is actually how I feel. I feel guilty, as you said, about, quote, leaving my kids or whatever to go and spend an hour or three times a week working out. And this is what I try to get people to wake up to. You will absolutely have more physical and mental energy to be the caregiver and to take care of your own well-being if you actually set aside that guilt or at least work on it put yourself first 
And you can actually do more for the people who rely upon you. Let's say you have a, a parent who you are caregiving for, right? Mm-hmm. If you, you can create that time, I think it pays off. And it, maybe it helps with any of the difficult, complicated, emotional stuff that goes on with being that caregiver, certainly for parents with kids. And I've seen some of my best friends, they have kids and their gym time is non-negotiable. Yeah, it actually sort of gives them a little bit of a break from the kids, but it <laughs> definitely gives the energy to navigate all of the other stuff that comes with life. And yeah. it's, so I, I, it's an attitude that I kind of hope people will wake up to and change. I love it. All good stuff. Andrew, I know you got to run. But um, I really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate the message that you have online. And I really appreciate you supporting the community and other professionals in our community. Um, I think that that means the world. And uh, listen, I appreciate that I shared your uh, I, I shared your post and immediately you sent me a DM with a voice memo. I think that's huge. And I think that definitely goes a long way. Um, so thank you for your time and thank you for coming on our show. Yeah, thank you. Jerome, Nicole, I appreciate you guys both having me on. Thank you. I'll say this to your listeners. You know, you guys put time into this. You're not paid to do this. This is obviously something you care about. So for everybody listening, um, you know, obviously, if you have questions for me, you know, you're more than welcome to message me on Instagram, but more so do a small kindness for these guys. Put up, you know, put up that positive review. Or if you like it and you're getting a lot of this, look around in your world and go, all right, is there someone who would really benefit from this. It's it's the best way to share and support people who are doing something that's adding value to your week and are doing it entirely for free. So make sure you're following both of them on social media. A lot of listeners don't even think to follow people on social media uh, and support them, please. So, and thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you very much. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 